today I'd like to talk about a tale of two kingdoms. The last week of Jesus' life brings to a head the clash of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Jesus knows where he is going and what awaits him in Jerusalem. He's been to Jerusalem many times, but there's something very special about this time. He sends his disciples ahead to make arrangements for his arrival. The city is overflowing with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles who have travelled from all over the known world to celebrate Passover. Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And this news has spread like wildfire. There's a prophet in the area who can heal lepers and raise the dead. Huge crowds are eager to see a man who can do such amazing things. But there's also talk that the Pharisees and teachers of the law don't believe this Jesus is from God and are dismayed by his teaching. How could a teacher who's not of God heal the sick and raise the dead? Who is this man? Could this be the long-awaited Messiah? Matthew, Mark and Luke all begin their accounts of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem with Jesus telling his disciples that he's going there to die. Mark says they were now on the way, they were now on the way up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. They knew the danger that they faced going up to Jerusalem as followers of Jesus. They'd heard that the authorities wanted to kill him and stamp out his, his followers. If they stayed in Galilee, everything would be okay. But to go up to Jerusalem was just inviting trouble. Jesus seemed determined to go anyway, so they were following along. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem, where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days he will rise again. Luke tells us that the disciples did not understand any of this. The meaning was hidden from them and they didn't know what he was talking about. It seems amazing to us looking back and yet they were expecting him to set them free from the Romans and they couldn't work out. It just seemed to go over their heads. They didn't yet understand that Jesus was establishing a different kind of kingdom. Now the kingdom of this world uses power to control. The power of money, the power of politics, the power of physical force have always been used since the beginning of the time to control others, both on a personal and on a nationwide scale. In more recent years, the power of the media has been added to uh, the world's devices for controlling the world, controlling people, controlling nations. But Jesus was introducing a different kind of kingdom. Mark goes on to record another conversation that happened on this journey. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, 
We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with? He was talking about his impending death. But they said, we can. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the other ten disciples heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. (laughs) Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This isn't the first time Jesus had taught them this idea, but it seems the disciples were as slow as us in grasping such upside-down kingdom ideas. In the world around them, the world that had fashioned them all their lives, you've got to look after number one. If you want something, you've got to go for it. You've got to ask, you've got to chase things. The rich are important and powerful people. They have slaves to take care of their needs. There was always politically powerful people. You've got to stay on the right side of them if you want to succeed. The power is wielded by the rich, the strong, the political people. Jesus' way doesn't make sense. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the king of Israel! They wanted him to be the king of Israel. Jesus was fulfilling part of a proclamation by the prophet Zechariah, declaring a restoration of the nation. Zechariah ministered to Israel about 500 years before Jesus, at the time when the Israelites were returning from 70 years of exile in Babylon. His prophecy of restoration wasn't fulfilled in the way they would have expected, and for 500 years the people kept on waiting for a physical restoration of their nation. Jesus didn't enter the city as a conquering king. 
A conqueror would have been on a great war horse or marching ahead of an army. Jesus knew what lay ahead of him. King Jesus humbly sat on a donkey's colt and entered the gates, leading to a week of mocking, scorning, beating, bludgeoning and ultimately sacrificing his life on the cross. Jesus came as a king, but a king of a very different upside-down kingdom. John tells us in his gospel that as Jesus came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late. Peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you, close you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognise it when God visited you. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus' upside-down kingdom says, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets that same way. It's not easy to reconcile Jesus' teaching with life as we know it. What does Jesus mean? Should we aim to be poor and hungry and sad and hated? Is this the way to blessing and happiness? Is this what it means to be part of God's kingdom? If so, it certainly is a very upside down kingdom. Jesus' teaching was radical. He said things like, take the lower seat at the table. Don't lay up treasure here on earth. Turn the other cheek. God values everyone, the poor, the weak, the outcasts. Forgive those who hurt you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Seek first the kingdom of God. Put others before yourself. In late October 2019, the pastor of one of China's best-known underground churches asked this of his congregation. Had they successfully spread the gospel throughout their city? If tomorrow morning the early rain covenant church suddenly disappeared from the city of Chengdu, if each of us vanished into thin air, would this city be any different? Would anyone miss us? Said Wang Ye, leaning over his pulpit and pausing to let the question weigh on his audience. I don't know. Almost three months later, Wang's hypothetical scenario is being put to, te- put to the test. The church in southwest China has been shuttered and Wang and his wife, Zhang Rong, remain in detention after police arrested more than 100 early rain church members in December. Many of those who haven't been detained are in hiding. Others have been sent away from Chengdu and barred from returning. 
Some, including Wang's mother and his young son, are under close surveillance. Wang and his wife are being charged for inciting subversion, a crime that carries a penalty of up to 15 years in prison. Now the whole Wang preached from sits empty. The pulpit and cross that once hung behind him, both gone. Prayer cushions have been replaced by a ping pong table and a film of dust. New tenants, a construction company and a business association, occupy the three floors the church once rented. Plainclothes police stand outside, turning away those looking for the church. Pastors such as Wang of Early Rain are especially alarming for authorities. Early Rain Church is one of the few who dare to face what's wrong in society, said one member. Most churches don't dare to talk about this, but we obey, strictly obey the Bible, and we don't avoid anything. It's estimated there are between 60 and 100 million Christians in China. China's Communist Party is intensifying religious persecution as Christianity's popularity grows. A new state translation of the Bible will soon be uh, published, establishing a correct understanding of the text. They're changing things like uh, having Jesus with the woman caught in adultery after all the people had gone he picked up the stones and stones her himself and says, I'm a sinner too. And you think? Wow. wow. Local governments have shut hundreds of unofficial congregations or house churches that operate outside the government's approved net church network. Less than a week after the mass arrest of early rain members, police raided a children's Sunday school at a church in uh, Zhangzhou. Officials have also banned a 1,500-member Zion church in Beijing after its pastor refused to install CCTV so they could watch what was happening and who came. Perhaps the underground church in places like China is growing so much because there's no chance for political involvement, no chance of becoming rich, Although China has opened up more to Western approach to business in recent years, there's still very limited opportunities for the people in China. No freedom, no hope. But Jesus says, follow me and I will satisfy your hunger. I give you a joy and a hope that are not dependent on wealth and the power of this world. Perhaps if one truly embraces Jesus' upside-down kingdom, it becomes precious enough to risk everything to keep it. Here in the West, we have the freedom to pursue wealth and political influence. We, can't readily, we can readily get caught up in trying to achieve things using the methods of the world. Was Jesus suggesting that we should all be poor, hungry and persecuted? No. What then? I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in politics or have wealth, but we have to always remember that as Christians, we're part of a different upside-down kingdom. We see so often politicians start out their careers wanting to do good things for society, but they get dragged down into the mire of using less than good means.
to achieve their ends. We need to pray for Christian politicians because they're in a world where they can be sorely tempted to compromise, to use the methods of the world to achieve good results. Jesus was teaching us that in his kingdom we get our significance, not from wealth and power, but because we are children of God and we're precious to him. He bought us, paid for us with the blood of Jesus. We have hope for a life beyond this one, a future where wrongs will be righted, righteousness will be normal, joy and peace will be normal. The kingdom of God will finally be a right-side-up kingdom. Pastor J.D. Greer says, If you're not generous, you've never really experienced the gospel. If you feel guilty about how little generosity you show, you don't understand the gospel. He goes on to explain his reasoning. Basically, the idea is this. It's impossible to really experience Jesus and not be radically generous in response. First, a major component of what it means to be truly converted is that you realise his kingdom is the most beautiful and lasting reality in the universe. You begin to find your significance in it, not in what you possess. So you don't have to spend lots of money to add beauty and significance in your life. Second, you recognise Jesus not money is your security for the future. So you don't have to save extravagant amounts of money to feel secure. Third, to be truly saved means you have some sense of how gracious God has been to you. The Bible repeatedly says that the sign that you've tasted God's grace is that you become gracious. When I read this story of Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem, I thought, why do this? What's the point? Why not just walk in the same as he had on all previous times? The crowds were looking for a leader, a saviour who would free them from the oppression of the Romans, a leader who would make the Jewish nation great again, like it was in the days of the great kings, David and Solomon. Jesus knows that he must not allow the crowds to see him this way. He comes on a humble donkey, stopping to weep over the future of this city and the people's reaction to his rejection of his mission. Jesus launches the final week of his earthly mission and ministry with a demonstration that his kingdom doesn't come like an earthly kingdom with a show of wealth and power and might. This was the final visit to Jerusalem, the city of David, the place God chose for the great temple that housed the presence of God. He knows the plan to rip that curtain open and see the presence and power of God burst out into the world. The plan to see his kingdom begin to spread across the whole world. But he knows the path to this outcome is via the cross. Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus begins his final triumph over disease, depression, death and darkness. He comes to set up his upside down kingdom with a demonstration of humility, poverty, weeping and suffering. He entered the city as a king, but as a different kind of king. Hugh Halter, author, church planter and pastor, tells this story. 
Two weeks after 9-11, I was in Queens, New York, training church planters. Every night, I walked down to a local Irish pub to eat dinner with some friends. A waitress named Fiona not only served us well, but seemed curious about our faith and what we were teaching pastors. Each evening, our conversation deepened. So why would you help pastors lead their churches if churches really don't do much good, she asked. Knowing that one third of her Irish friends in the 80s and 90s were sexually abused in the Catholic school system and that two of her friends were killed in Protestant Catholic fights gave me ample reason not to judge her criticism of organised religion. What could I say? How could I explain my love for Jesus without bringing the church into it? I simply talked with her about the kingdom. Fiona, Jesus came to offer an alternative way of life from all the exclusive religious, sectarian and sinful ways people live. He called it the kingdom and it was huge for people back in the day and also for anyone looking for the real God. I've never heard about the kingdom, she said. Tell me more. My final night in town, as I came in to say goodbye before flying back to Oregon, I heard Fiona yell over a crowded room, that's the guy I was telling you about. You've got to hear how he talks about God. As the bar room split and she called her friends over, she looked at me and said, tell them what you told me, you know, all that stuff about the kingdom. That night, everything changed for me. I started an entirely new spiritual journey that pulled me out of my jaded consumeristic Christianity. What happened next? We simply grabbed a few friends and started a community that was committed to living out and inviting others into kingdom ways of life. Lord, we do. We, we're so grateful for what you did to bring your upside down kingdom into this world and for us. Lord, help us to live by your kingdom principles. Help us to share those principles with others and to tell them about your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.